Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Welcome to our first show of 2022. Today's guest is Batya Unger Sargon, the Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek. She has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, the New York Review of Books Daily, and other publications. She has appeared numerous times on MSNBC, NBC, The Brian Lehrer Show, NPR, and other media outlets. She holds a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and her latest book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, was released in October. I welcome Batya Unger-Sargon to Savage Minds. Eight years ago, nine years ago, when I started writing about the woke wars, because I came to journalism through academia. And one of the things that struck me about this, and this happened around 2010, was the way in which I had to learn very quickly that I had to vet my pitches depending on the political inclination of the publication, which I thought was odd. And this is how I learned to do it. I basically would send out pitches about a lot of the work I was doing nine years ago on the gender critical movement and gender identity as ideology. And when I would send this to editors, if they were from Slate, for instance, I got a very nasty cold response. Mm-hmm. And if, it, you know, you, it was like very odd for me to think, wait, I'm writing about factual things. It's not like I took a lot of drugs and I'm making stuff up and sending it to editors as a prank. And yet serious social issues were already being vetted at the first stage of pitching. So when I saw something you wrote recently on this subject, and then your book, I was piqued, you know, completely. My interest was right there because I thought, thank God I'm not the only one seeing this. What has gone on in <laughs> major media that we are given an ideological drip IV every day. <laughs> the news is almost non-existent. Oh man, that's such a great metaphor. I wish I had called my book the drip. That would have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> no, and like it's so funny because um so your name your name Julian is often a man's name and when you reached out to me I was sort of reading some of your stuff completely assuming you were a man and I had a very woke moment when I realized that you were a woman and I had like within me one of the vestiges of my own sort of crypto wokeness was I was like oh yeah that's better that she's a woman writing about these <laughs> issues <laughs> and I had to right. check myself and be like no everyone is allowed to write the truth but yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but that, isn't I it think... odd how that I do this too? I catch myself. I'm thinking, yeah, hmm, he's a man. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it's so wrong. And um, I remember. So I remember, you know, so in 2014, when I was writing things that were critical of the kind of affirmative consent movement on, on college campuses, and I was still able to place those people, you know, I had a piece in like the New Republic, for example. And so that was kind of, I feel like the last moment where there were still sort of some breakthroughs, like if you were a woman, you could write, you know, like things critical about like things like overreach or whatever it was. And then right, that right. kind of you know, um, so that I in the in my book, the 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 sort of genealogy I write about about like the great awakening um, based on the work of sociologists, again, factual stuff. It, um, so what they found was that, you know, something happened in 2011, 2012, when a lot of uh, media outlets were figuring out how to make digital media profitable. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you started to see the absolute skyrocketing of, you know, woke vocabulary. So words like marginalization and oppression and white supremacy and white privilege, the word slavery started to skyrocket as though there was, you know, somehow we were, you know, um, uh, reinvigorating the past. Um, and and that kind of woke binary, um, where you sort of divide the world into powerful versus powerless based on that Hegelian master-slave dialectic, and then you you 
superimpose a racial binary onto that. That became a way of media companies going digital, um, a way for them to really maximize the tools at their disposal in terms of the internet and how it works and to create more engagement with a, an increasingly white, affluent, highly educated readership. And what the sociologists noted was that that sort of that that thing that happened in the media happened around 2011, 2012, it started to absolutely skyrocket. We're still sort of seeing that. We're still in the upswoop of that hockey stick of those words. But around 2015, the impact that was having on white liberals started to show up in surveys. So white liberals became much more radical in their views on race than blacks and Latinos because they were taking their cues from this media that had created this feedback loop with them around wokeness. And then what happened was, you know, starting around 2016, 2017 with Trump, there became a taboo on anything that really um, contravened this worldview. So you had the New York Times by design um, pushing its reporters to become social media stars. They then started to wield immense power on social media, which they could then use to force personnel decisions back on their bosses at the New York Times. And journalists became increasingly unwilling to publish or to write or to even, um, you know, in their own thoughts, countenance views that could incite the ire of this highly educated, affluent white readership. That, that's kind of the narrative of the second half of my book. Well, it's an excellent narrative because I don't know if you've been following what's happened to people like Adolf Reed, who pointed out a lot yeah. of the problems of the left underscoring non-material reality, how you see me, how I identify, and what about historical materialism? What about actual socialist undertakings? And he was upended by his own people. <laughs> yeah? yeah. And he was canceled. And and he's not the only one, but he's been he's had it on many uh, different angles, let's say, from his piece where he said, one trans is good, the other bad, referring to Bruce Jenner and then Rachel Dolezal. This was years uh -huh. ago. Uh -huh. And then his more recent foray into asking, well, there is no data that African-Americans actually suffer more COVID. This has been completely media manufactured. And he wanted to have a more, a more reality-based discussion on what inflex COVID numbers that might be more sociological and not racial, right? And no, he got again upended. So what I noted about your book is something that has come to me time and time over. Where to begin? You look at the shift within journalism and how it moved from being a fundamentally blue collar undertaking to being a very elite white collar one. Now, the unions in the United States have gone through the similar kind of metamorphosis. What has happened that white collar, university educated, and another kind of upper middle class or above wokeness has entered into these sectors, especially media? So um, it's funny because the, there still are blue collar unions um, and they refer to the kind of white collar unions as desk unions, which white collar unions really hate because apparently that's, you know, considered very derogatory. So we do, obviously, you know, there are still sort of, you know, the, 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 the vast American working class, which is downwardly mobile that, you know, journalists used to belong to that. They used to live among working class people. They used to live next door to, you know, electricians and linemen and factory workers. And they made, you know, maybe a little bit more money than them, but it was considered, you know, a high working class job. And over the course of the 20th century, journalists became increasingly highly educated. 92% of journalists now have a college degree. The vast majority of them have a graduate degree, even though you can't teach journalism, right? For the majority of American history, journalists didn't go to college and a lot of them didn't even go to high school. Uh, you can't teach someone how to be a good listener, right? You can't teach them how to question their own biases. And certainly American universities are not teaching that, right? So despite right. this, it, so why are they so highly educated? Because it's become a, a high status job. It's become a job where you can become famous, which is something that, you know, meritocratic elites really love. 
love. And, um, and, and over the last 20 years, especially they've become affluent. And that is something that uh, I think nobody foresaw happening, which was the ways in which the knowledge industry jobs, um, would become very, very, um, well-rewarded jobs. That's very new. So even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, journalists were very highly educated, but they still weren't, you know, you know, living next door to corporate lawyers and making just a little bit less than them. So that shift happened very recently. And as journalists sort of, you know, stopped being working class, you know, as they underwent this status revolution, became highly educated and affluent and part of the top 10%, they really abandoned the working class and started to cater to each other and write for each other. And but that the, the, this is something that's happened in the Democratic more Democratic Party more broadly, where you really see them sort of they their new but used to be they were the party of labor. Now they are the party of, you know, highly educated liberals. And Thomas Piketty, the, the French economist, has shown that this is happening not just in America, but really across the developed world, where you see left-leaning parties that used to be on the side of labor and right-leaning parties, which used to be the party you voted for if you were rich, did this kind of, you know, there's been this total reversal where now the Republican Party is the one cleaning up among the working class, um, increasingly among the working class of all races, whereas you have the liberal parties catering to this sort of much more highly educated elite. Now, you know, <laughs> I argue in the book that this sort of woke revolution uh, is the latest stage of journalists abandoning the working class. It's 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 sort of a way of exactly the way Adolf Reed uh, argued. It's a way of obfuscating the true divide in America, which is a class divide, a way of obfuscating income inequality from which highly educated liberals have benefited immensely, right? And distracting from that by placing all of our angst and all of our guilt on another scene, the racial scene, where of course we still struggle with some areas of racism, but by and large, we're making huge strides. There's no longer a partisan divide over that. Um, so you you relocate the, the struggle to a place that's um, symbolic in nature and not reflective of reality. Now, I think you and I may disagree about um, how much goodwill is in that category error. I tend to think that while it is totally true that they are lining their pockets with the proceeds of making this category error, it still stems from a place of, you know, um, of, of, of goodwill. Like they, people, you know, we do still struggle with racism and it is very hard to be an affluent white person. You see, you know, police killing, police killing, police killing, you see, you know, um, you know, and, and, and to not then overgeneralize and assume that this is sort of, you know, that police killing black people is the problem when that's not actually the problem. The problem is that they beat them up more and they insult more and they put them in handcuffs more and they pull them over more, but they actually don't shoot them more. Right. It's very hard to sort of, you know, from your position, um, understand what is real and what is not real, especially when the media is making a lot of money over pushing the wrong narrative. And I do think that a lot of these people, you know, look, let's put it this way. I don't think the woke revolution would have happened if it wasn't economically beneficial to highly educated liberals, but I do think that they really believe that they are sort of bending the moral arc of history towards justice when they engage in this stuff. But I, I, what do you think about that? Where do you fall on that question? It's interesting. I have been underwhelmed since WMD by the media. Uh -huh, we have uh -huh. had Judith Miller lied in her piece, which ended up being recycled by Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and George W. Bush into a war. That since that happened, I've always wondered why there was no investigation. Since mm -hmm. when is the Pentagon or the White House taking cues from a New York Times reporter? I mean, we know that journalists have lied in the past. She could have made it all up. Well, guess what? A lot of it was made up. Now, I skipped to this past summer, the infamous Y-Spot incident, where the media stoked that by not reporting accurately what happened. So LA County is out tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in policing what were several weeks of protests because the media chose to lie. And I wrote about this, I covered this really after weeks of seeing that no one was covering, I thought someone will, someone will, because I try to stay away from this issue because it boils my blood. Then I went ahead, I looked at the video that was shot at the Y Spa, and then I saw there was a lawyer who said, I shot the video of the person shooting the video. You can't, a slate, <laughs> Slate's Avon Urquhart maintained that this was a fake video. So did Patricia Arquette, so did The Guardian's Lois Beckett and Sam Levin. You had major papers and a Hollywood star running around saying it's fake. Wait, in the same thread as this woman's video showing 
what happened is this lawyer who shot her shooting the video. You can't fake that. <laughs> There's just no way. So it's like that Monty's Python sketch. You remember when, when uh, John Cleese is like, wait a minute, if you're the camera crew who were filming us, yeah, who's yeah. filming us now? <laughs> Well, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts that they, no major paper when, so I did, I wrote a piece up. This was on uh, the date of this is September 8th. So many weeks after the incident took place, I went and found, I interviewed the lawyer who shot the video, everything on board. I, I fact-checked everything he said as well, by the way, we don't do fact-checking anymore. Now it's guardian columnists outraged that women in a spa didn't want a sexual predator, as it came to be revealed, in their private space, even if he wasn't a sexual predator. I'm sure you know what's happening on the other side of the pond. Women have been pushing back. I was one of them. I was based in London for many years, pushing back on an ideology that's very akin to what you look at as well in your book when we're talking about woke uh, media. Part of this like the Guardian that received $250,000 from the Open Society Foundation specifically earmarked for gender identity. So we see that there is a very strange set of bedfellows between media and the very people they're supposed to be reporting on, such as big tech, big business, right? Yeah. And what, what are the responses to this? Because between major media pulling this, social media becoming this very odd echo chamber, you can't write too much on Twitter, Facebook is limited to you, a select group of people that you allow to see you. And it seems that when Trump was going on about fake news, what the Democrats hated to hear, he was right. And who would I have ever thought to say you know, that he was right? <laughs> But as yeah, you point out in your yeah. book, this, Trump wasn't the first one pointing out fake news. And we've had this for years. But as I mentioned initially, my, the fact that I have to vet my pitches, and I know now I can no longer pitch gender identity to Slate unless I'm saying, I'm going to write about a, a trans woman who's very brave. You know, if I don't begin my pitch like that, forget it. And I have a problem with the way in which these identity politics have become harnessed within newsrooms and within like the NUJ in the UK, National Union of Jun Journalists, made a memorandum instructing, up, instructing all of us how to refer to trans-identified men or women. And I'm thinking, wait a sec, they're instructing us ideologically with something that has actually not even agreed to yet in law or in science. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, to me, this is all about class at the end of the day, like it's about taking the views, the sort of commonsensical views of working class people and making them taboo as a way of sort of deplatforming them and um, trying to rob them of symbolic and also electoral power. Um, and you see this both with race and with gender and with a host of other issues where this very academic language overnight becomes not just the norm, but um, on the other, if you're on the other side of it, you become untouchable in a way. And it's, it, I think it's, it's not an accident that the views that are becoming untouchable are the views that are, you know, shared by 99% of working class people, you know, 80% of middle-class people, you know, it's, it's, a it's, you take a view that's commonsensical, like the idea that we should all be striving for a colorblind society. And uh, an idea that was not the norm in many sectors of America, tragically, for much of our history, right? And then the moment that becomes the idea that every yokel, you know, in flyover country, you know, everyone in the South is now suddenly like, damn, that is the thing we all need to be striving for. The minute that becomes, you know, the idea that every working class person is finally on board with and like, oh, yeah, you're right. That is, that is, you know, that's what God wants from us that you make it taboo and you make you turn that into racism. You start saying that's a racist view. It's a way of silencing people who don't go to fancy universities where they learn a whole bunch of critical race theory malarkey or a whole bunch of you know deconstruction or postmodernism where they don't read Foucault and they don't read Derrida and they don't know that like that postmodernist reversal is the key to everything, right? It's just so that that to me, whenever I see them pushing a very counterintuitive idea 
as not just a new norm, but as the, the, the price of entry, right, to having your voice heard, that's where you see that, you know, and then they'll say, like, why are you, you know, this is cultural issues. No, this is not cultural issues. This is class warfare dressed up as culture war issues, right? It's obfuscating class completely. All of the preoccupation that the media lends towards racism here and there or gender identity here and there and the outrage movements, the less that we're focusing on the homeless outside the train station. Well, absolutely. And, and um, you know, Michael Schellenberger has done amazing work to show how, you know, when you have a problem like a homelessness problem where you have homeless people um, take, making encampments in public spaces, right, where they're literally stealing parks from poor children, right, who have nowhere else to go to play in greenery. And, and so and you look at what side, you know, liberals are falling on on this issue, you could so easily imagine a world in which the left position is to side with the poor children, right? And instead you see them siding with, you know, people setting up essentially little drug cities in public spaces. You saw the same thing with the lockdowns and with the teachers unions, right? You could so easily imagine a world in which the lefty position was to say, how dare you stay home and deprive the poorest, most vulnerable children of an education. It's the only thing we're offering them as a pathway out of poverty. How dare you exacerbate that? Get back in those classrooms. And instead they sided with the white collar teachers, right? Like the, this white collar union people who are making 80 dollars a year to sit at home and refuse to leave their houses and rely on the labor of their children's parents who are out there in the pandemic exposing themselves like essential workers right so i think that in that sense you know where you see that that really is is how you know that this is you know these pressures are so much bigger and really political they are class-based but they reveal the sort of class bias of the people who claim to be on the left people who call themselves socialists, right? You know, what that word means in America today is ridiculous. It is risible and it's angering because I was in the first country in the West to go into lockdown and I swear I wanted to murder someone. After a few weeks, I started to see, was it here in La Repubblica or in, in London, The Guardian or The New York Times where you'd see the class divide? 10 things to do with your kids while homeschooling, right, right, thinking, right, right. what in the fuck? Who made this law? I've yelled at the government recently. I had a, a wipeout the other week and I printed it all up on my Facebook wall because I thought I'm having a nervous breakdown. What's happened in Italy is the same that's happened in the US, the same that's happened in the UK or Ireland or Spain. Basically, the class of people that does child rearing we can't say it without getting kicked off of Twitter, but since this is a Savage Minds podcast, I can say women. They are the ones that had to get yeah. their careers on the second back burner. Yeah. And even here in Italy, loads of women have not been able to go back to work. They brought in these ridiculous bonus babysitter here. They use the words in English, it drives me mental. And the reason why they did that is to make it look like they were doing something who can afford 800 euro a month to pay a babysitter or 1200 or more? No one who is not middle or upper middle class. You basically were given these crumbs by the government, which set it onto a sure path that anyone who was middle class or poor, the women would have to give up their work. And that's pretty much what's happened. Again, pitch that to the Guardian last year. And no, it it will look like we're not pro-lockdown. This is what I got from every response, by the way. It was always, if we talk about mental health, it'll look like we're not pro-lockdown. <laughs> Wait a sec. So the leftist publications, Batya, are the very ones that were pushing lockdown, giving this voice to the people who thought lockdown was a good idea. And then as you say, it's the working class schmoes, Deliveroo people. These are the people that were expected to get out and work. And where was the applause for them? And then the court cases also that have come through about the rights of people driving cars for Uber, et cetera. We know those stories and how they've differed between the L.A. court decision last year, I believe, and then the mm -hmm. ones, the many ones in the U.K. So we're talking about. And I had a lot to this. I, I know the head of the Royal College of Psychiatry 
And I wrote him recently because I wanted to have him on the show about something he worked on years ago. But the discussion flowed towards trauma. His present specialty is post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And I said, are there any psychiatrists working on the stress that we have felt from this lockdown? And he said, well, it's not PTSD. And I said, well, I don't know what it is, but crazy is a word I'd use to mix up in there because this has been the most stressful thing I've ever lived through in my life. And I've lived in war-torn areas. I have been shot at by the Contras. I have lived through Sendero Luminoso and Tupac Amaru County in Peru. So I don't think we can minimalize. And what I've seen happening, it's not just in media, by the way, a lot of institutions have been set on this course to moderate everything and make everything seem okay, no matter what the choice no one's allowed to like scream at the camera and just have a fit and say what's going on unless of course they're in fox news right i was just gonna say like you know (laughs) the conservative media in america is playing a very important role because it is produced by and large for working class americans for people without a college degree and as such that is its orientation and you know, people at the New York Times love to write op-eds like, you know, Fox News ate my mother's brain or whatever it is. That was like actually a headline from, from a New York Times reporter. Um, but but at the end of the day, Fox News is concerned. It's not making working class people conservative. It's conservative because it's catering to the working class. And it was astounding, you know, to see them throughout the pandemic, taking the side of workers, taking the side of essential workers, working class people. Um, every week they feature small businesses that are struggling. They get them, you know, hundreds of thousands of orders just by putting their faces up there and they interview them about what it's like you'll never see that on cnn and um it's it's just very i i can't help but think and i'm curious what you think about this that if that if trump had won in 2020 um our entire perspective on you know all of these things would have been very very different on the vaccines on the you know on the mask mandates etc and even further than that if clinton had won in 2016 you know um wouldn't wouldn't it have been the exact reverse that the liberals would have been on the side of look let's keep the economy going right like let's not make the president look bad like let you know let's celebrate you know operation warp speed you know and it would have been the conservatives that would have been on the side of you know hysteria mm-hmm. around things i mean everything has gotten so politicized because of the media when the truth is is you go out there you meet people in the streets and like everybody's pretty much on the same page if you're not in that top 10% of like liberal political elites chattering classes, knowledge industry jobs, you know, the pajama class, as Carol Markowitz so aptly put it, people who can sit at home and in their pajamas and type on their computers, you know, and rely on the backbreaking labor of essential workers who are out there in the pandemic, you know, everybody else is really just pretty much on the same page. And that, that's what the media can't report because their entire business model is based on, you know, reporting on division. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I don't know if you read Matt Taibbi's Hit Inc., but he looks at how major media creates clicks, gains subscriptions by feeding this frenzy of anger and hatred. And when I read this, I thought, well, yeah, absolutely. This is part of, again, going back to the outrage over you misgendered him. So, and all those videos that you see seen being shared on Twitter. And it's like, wait, we're, we're paying our attention to a man in a dress who's burgled a shop. And the, the focus that the media is taking from this is, the clerk being robbed misgendered him or something. I mean, it's that so crazy. And I'm thinking, wait a sec, am I a leftist or am I crazy? Like I have days where I have to ask myself this because skip back to post invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, the one person I could not stand to see was Tucker Carlson. And now he makes my heart beat. I know it's crazy, but he is asking the questions that other media are not. And so I get very angry at leftist media. Why have they failed to do this? Is this just because they're selling out to clicks? Is that it? Well, okay, let's take something like crime, right? Um, Something that uh, disproportionately impacts, if not almost exclusively impacts poor people of color in America, especially the black community, right? Poor black Americans, like the people we, we have abandoned over and over, the American descendants of slaves, um, 
who still suffer from, you know, poor black people still suffer from whatever vestiges of institutional racism and state-sponsored racism exist. And, and, and who, you know, we owe a huge debt based on our history. You know, I, I support reparations. And, and, and um, so these communities are being plagued by crime right now. There is an absolute skyrocketing of murder. Uh, over a hundred black children were killed last year. A hundred black children shot because they were poor and black essentially and living in these neighborhoods. And you will not ever read their names in the liberal press. This is not an issue for leftists because the crime is happening in liberal cities and democratic run cities. And there's essentially an effective taboo on covering the victims of these crimes who are the people who we owe the most to. And it's, it's risable, like you say, who's covering it? You turn on Fox News every day this week, they had a feature on the rising crime. Now, of course, I'm not saying they're doing that from, you know, the goodness of their hearts. They love it because, you know, they can indict the Democrats for their, you know, terrible governance, right? And for things like defund the police, a police pullback, like why is a police officer going to put his life at risk when everybody hates him? You know, there's like all sorts of great culture war stuff there for them to chew on. They, they don't, they don't approach it the way I do, which is just with an absolute out reboiling rage that we have abandoned these children, that we have abandoned these communities again and again and again. And despite all of the Black Lives Matter banners all over Park Slope, not a single person there knows about this or cares about what's happening to their neighbors, you know, a 10 minute drive away from them, from their effectively gated community. You know, the, 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 that to me is just another example. So why, why is the liberal media not covering crime. And I, I think it's because it embarrasses their readers. Their readers don't want to read about it because of the race of most of the perpetrators. And because it embarrasses them, they, they are sentencing these children. They would rather sentence these children to live with bullets flying past their homes where they can't walk to school without passing through gang territory than read about something that embarrasses their liberal pieties. And to me, that is just, you know, the, the, the tab uncovering crime is just it is so inexcusable it is so inexcusable and it is so immoral and it just to me reveals you know what is very obvious to black people in america which is that this whole woke movement is is a way of further abandoning them not of catering to them and giving them the things that they actually need it's a way of saying you know we need a black person to be leading you know the fed <laughs> as opposed to saying we need black children to be safe from flying bullets and i think it does get back to you know, the meritocracy at the end of the day, which is a way of saying like, we must protect the brilliant and the talented and make sure that we get every single person of color into the elites, which is a noble goal. We must, that is absolutely, you know, every Einstein who's living in an inner city, you know, needs to be rescued and, you know, sent to Harvard and, and, and have the chance to excel. But the meritocracy begs the question fundamentally, what about everybody else? And to meritocratic liberal white elites, they are the people who were rescued, you know, a generation ago, right, who saved themselves from middle America from working class jobs, and were able to rise and they, you know, to them, that is the success, that is the American dream. It's not the idea that we live in a more just and equitable society. It's the idea that people who are smart and talented, people who are brilliant and beautiful, like AOC, managed to get out of working class life and into a job where you're going to make $200,000 starting salary right so so i think that that you know there's there's a sort of the the when you think about things like that like at the end of the day you really see how this is about class it's not about politics it's not really about race it's about class i completely agree with you but what has really gotten me down over the past nine years is to see how the media has dug in the guardian you will be hard pressed to find any kind of real article there about the poor. I'll give you an example. About seven years ago, I was living in the center of London and I was reading a piece. I cackled out loud in a cafe. It was about one of their writers was going to live on no money for a year, except <laughs> and her list of accepts. One of the first accepts was her life insurance. And I just oh I laughed until I cried because that uh, says it all. Totally. I mean, yeah, I would have had more respect for her if she said, I'm never going to have life insurance. I'm going to live like the rest of you schmucks. But no. Now, the same kind of ethos. And, you know, I didn't want to avoid your question earlier. But when you asked me what I think about this, the way in which 
these ideologies, anti-racism, gender, et cetera, et cetera, has, has had an, an effect within the managerial class, let's say to use uh, Reed's terminology. I don't know if they're doing it in good faith. See, you said mm -hmm. you thought so, and I'll tell you why I don't think so. And this is a hard thing for me to say because, I, but I think it's a necessary thing to say. I don't think we can any longer claim and make that claim that people voting for Brexit were racists. That was what was touted about by the Independent and the Guardian. Yes, but it yes. doesn't. Polls reveal a very different story, and the Lexiters, to include J Jeremy Corbyn himself revealed this to be true. There were very many good left and right reasons for leaving Britain. I won't go into it here, but I was guilty of that. I wrote a piece where I basically equated a vote for Brexit with racism. I regret that piece because in reading after, one of my friends, Magdalene Burns, said you should read the Alexa arguments. I started to read them and I was like, okay, I see your point. points. So I think that we are very quick on the left to read racism into things where there are no incidents of racism. And that goes back to this issue of where you talk about the blue collar trade of journalism becoming an elite profession. That is true in so many sectors to include even academia uh, where you see fewer and fewer people in academia of working class backgrounds. But the idea that racism is something that people who watch Fox News do and not people who read the good New York Times do, that is wrong. I think that what we're seeing when we scratch the surface of these narratives is another type of racism. And I think there's something effectively very racist about someone saying that having a statue of Robert E. Lee up is a racist example. No, who is that helping to have it taken down or to put up? And who are the people being covered in that five minute news slot? There are careers being made like Robin DiAngelo of, of clearing out the office space from bad racists. Wait a sec, these are purity spirals. And this, I don't think that this should be the job of business, private or public, of government, of various forms of institutions and in the NGO sector to start purifying their cadre. I think we should be sitting with what ideas mean, right? What does that mean? Like, you know, does everyone have to read Foucault, as you referred earlier, to have a job as a journalist? And why has this lingo entered so quickly, you know? No, absolutely. And, and um, I think we saw a similar thing with Trump, obviously, like, you know, smearing every Trump voter is racist. And what you would see is um, these academic studies by sociologists claiming to, to prove, you know, time and again, you know, that it was ra racial resentment, not economic anxiety that, you know, drove Trump's voters. And but when you look into these studies, you know, I, I sort of did a deep dive into them in my book. And I found that a lot of the questions they asked them were economic questions. And if they answered them one way or another, they would rate them as racist. So one example of this was they would ask them, um, are you worried an immigrant is going to take your job, which is a purely economic question, right? Are you worried you're going to lose your job to an immigrant, somebody who's going to work for lower wages? And if they said yes, they put them in the racist category. And, and, and that was just so perfect because, because a journalist cannot imagine worrying about a, 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 an immigrant taking their job, right? Because you know, who could take your job who doesn't speak English, right? And it was just such a perfect example of this. And meanwhile, the most anti-immigrant group in the Democratic coalition are Black Americans because mass immigration has been related to a 40% decrease in black wages. We essentially invited in an entire new working class to work for lower wages, and they took the jobs from our working class, right, from black Americans who were working those jobs. And it's so funny that they now smear as racist anybody who has the views of a big portion of the people who are the only people who are actually still experiencing racism, right? What a betrayal of the American descendants of slaves. And yet now it's considered racist to believe that we should have any kind of immigration for enforcement at all. And why is that? Again, it's like, so So I believe, yes, they truly, their heart truly bleeds for, for, the, for the poor and the dispossessed of other countries. But at the end of the day, you know, there has been a massive rise in GDP 
based on mass immigration for one specific class. And that is the class of highly educated people with very demanding jobs who need domestic labor, right? Those are the people who are benefiting materially in very real ways from mass immigration. And so it's like this combination of taking something that is, you know, economically benefiting your class very much, and then dressing up your economic interests with this patina of social justice while abandoning the American descendants of slaves, like the people who we actually owe a debt to. That's the move that, you know, you see over and over. And I think that the through line between Trump and Brexit. Very well stated. I'm thinking of what you said just now, because you talk about the ways in which radical ideas were just on the fringe over a decade ago are now so integral to these newsrooms and papers. But there's also something else that's gone on around this where, as you just mentioned, that we're not seeing that kind of representation within left media. You won't see Black Americans would prefer that immigration be reduced, no? You'll see that at Newsweek. And what's funny is that we have been branded center-right for the crime of running opinion across the spectrum. And I, I think that is something you're really seeing in America. So if, if, if anyone dares to run opinion from both sides, that is now considered a right-wing proposition. And it's just so funny to me. Like, it's one of those things where I'm like, where leftists will brand you as right-wing just for wanting to hear from the other side. And it's, it's like, that just seems like such an own goal to me. Like, really? Like, you're, they think they're insulting me, but I'm like, what, aren't you insulting yourself? Like, isn't that kind of an admission that I can't, you literally will not countenance the views of anyone you disagree with. And it's so funny as well. Like if you say that wokeness is a smokescreen for class, they'll say that's a conservative talking point. And I can't help but feel like, wait a minute, you're saying that to care about inequality and a class divide is a right-wing proposition. And you think I I'm losing out by that and you're winning, like that's a win for the left to brand caring about, about inequality as the thing the other side does. Like that's, that is essentially to seed the, that's to, 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 to seed, right. That's to essentially call the game for the other side. Like you're, you're really going to say now only conservatives care about inequality. Is that really where the left wants to go? But that's really what you see over and over, you know, and I agree with you about Tucker. He's the only person talking about class and for the crime of talking about class, you know, and of course, you know, he's, he's, you know, he, he can be, he can, he can be mean. I will, you know, but, but that, that is sort of, there's, there's anyone who, who talks about class, Josh Hawley, right? Anybody who is clearly going all in on a class-based vision will get branded as some sort of, you know, domestic terrorist. And I mean, I'm overstating a little bit, of course, but so many of these things that they call culture war issues are actually about class. I'll just give you another example. The median income for a black family where the couple is married is $90,000 and $90,000 a year. You know, being married is co totally correlated with having a much higher income in America. That's just a fact, so, you know, that, 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 that economists have noted. And it's so funny because that, that's an economic fact, right? That being married is, it, you will improve the outcomes of your children and not being married, you will create downward mobility for your children. Now, you, you could imagine a world in which the left read that and thought, my God, like, you know, the number one thing we can do to improve the lot of the poor and the working class is to encourage marriage, is to create a fertile ground where people understand that, you know, marriage is going to be rewarded, you know, socially because it is so rewarded economically, right? We can imagine so easily imagine a world in which that was a left-wing concern, but instead what they push is of course all of this gender identity stuff. It infects things like union speak to where you have conservative working class people who really need those unions and who really need to get married being pushed out of unions because they can't stomach all of this language policing, right? This is something that I've reported on and, and they need that marriage. They need that union. They need the better wages. And instead they'd rather vote for, you know, right to work laws that penalize them because they can't handle the language policing and that language policing. It's not a culture war thing. It's actually around issues that are sort of, you know, making ideas like the sanctity of marriage 
language into a taboo, right? Into something that you don't talk about in polite society, which is going to have an economic impact on their lots. And I think that's, again, something that you're seeing, which is, you know, highly educated liberals who, by the way, are all married, right? They are all married and reaping the benefits of that are pushing the idea that to talk about marriage is somehow retrograde and evil and bad and homophobic and transphobic and racist and whatever, when actually that is something that could really help people who we have abandoned, who we owe that help to, right? So it's just to me so much of what gets, you know, cast as cultural issues is about class at the end of the day. It's about this class divide where, you know, the people who have benefited from the class divide or the people who used to be on the side of the bottom, they used to be the side on the, of the working class and are now on their own side, essentially. Well said, I tell you, it's, <laughs> it is refreshing to hear. No, but I really have days that I think I'm insane because I this lockdown has been very hard on me and my family. It has also been hard to witness the complete abandon of the left. I was seeing it within the gender identity wars I've been covering since 2012. I saw how people would persona non grata women from their social circles in London. Women were kicked off of labor parties. They were kicked out of other political parties. They were not allowed to say that women deserve their own spaces without being called a transphobe. Now, I thought that was really out there. But now during this lockdown era and seeing the pushback that people of the working class have given and, and seen the back that has been turned to them by so-called leftist papers. Yeah. I yep. have been raged. I have been like, I, I curse some days and I, I, I tell my wife even, I'm like, there is no left and right left. I don't think we can actually talk about left and right anymore yeah. because it's that bad. Now I'm all happy to abandon the dichotomy and to go to specific issues. And I really, I've told people this, I, I think we should start abandoning political parties in terms of how we speak about things. And let's talk about how we feel about issue one, two, three, four. So should people be forced to sleep outside a Greyhound bus station because they're poor? Should people be forced to have a vaccine that is very leaky, et cetera, et cetera. Like we can start to talk about issues instead of this Rachel Maddow approach to insanity, which we know now Russiagate was a complete falsity. So I'm very outraged by the fact that the left media isn't even coming back to say we got this wrong. Well, the New York Times did a little bit. They had to doctor one of their articles when the Russiagate information came out a few weeks ago. But we're not seeing this full apologia come out saying we got weapons of mass destruction wrong. We got Russiagate wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Even the Biden laptop issue, how that was handled. And I wonder, uh, are people's faiths in the media completely blown now? Is this why we're seeing the rise of smaller media and people going to Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, for instance, for their news? I think trust in the media is at an all-time low. I don't think this, this has been shown, you know, with uh, with surveys. Um, I'll give you another example that ties into something you brought up, which is the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Um, the media really went out of its way to try to give the impression that he had killed black people, um, and they 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 did this by you know you know repeating over and over and over that phrase, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot three people and killed two at a Black Lives Matter protest, right? So erasing the fact that it was a violent riot, erasing the history of his three attackers, the two of whom he shot, one was a convicted pedophile who had served 10 years in prison for raping boys, right? The second of whom was a domestic abuser and the third of whom um, had punched his grandmother, right? And, you know, it's you could so easily imagine a world in which the media looked at this and said, wow, it's probably not an accident that the three people who attacked him were white people who had a habit of preying on you know, the vulnerable people in their lives, right? Like, but no, so they, they buried the, this history. You had Joy Reid sitting there saying, you know, in this tearful voice, let us remember Rittenhouse's victims, you know, Joseph Rosenbaum, right? You know, the pedophile, right? And, you know, this, this, this it, was, it was insane. And, and um, so they try to give this impression. And there was actually a British paper that actually came out and said, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, who, who shot three Black people. But most of them, they didn't go that far, but they really did go out of their way 
to hide the fact that these three had attacked him, that they all had these like horrible histories of attacking very vulnerable people, pedophile, like, right? Like, how did we become the side? You know, that's like mournfully reading out the name of a pedophile. Like, I'm not saying that pedophiles deserve to be shot you know, on site, but you know, (laughs) like, again, you could imagine a world in which this kid who turns out to support Black Lives Matter and who turns out, you know, to think that he should use his platform to make sure that young Black men who don't get, you know, fair shakes in the criminal justice system will get the fair shakes that he got, you know, that, that, that he, he became, you know, somebody that we could all admit, you know, has something that we should, you know, that at least that we don't have to smear as white supremacy absent any evidence. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you that there's been, you know, so what is, so what do people do with that? Now, I have to tell you, I have talked to so many liberals, so many left-wing people who really believe that he killed Black people and really did not know, like, despite, you know, knowing about the trial, knowing the trial was ongoing, but somehow managed, you know, by osmosis to get this wrong impression. And then when you say to them, okay, what are you going to do with this information I just gave you? Like he shot and killed a white pedophile and a white domestic terror, a white um, um, domestic abuser. What are you going to do with this information? They don't say like, oh my God, I'm never going to accept, you know, immediate information again. Like when you talk to the white liberals to whom this kind of media, for whom this kind of media is produced, they have some sort of excuse the media. They say, oh, well, I wasn't following it that closely. That's what they say, right? I wasn't following it that closely, which is a way of defending the media that is produced for them. Like I've never had somebody say to me, my God, I'm really going to be suspicious of what I read in the New York Times from now on and make sure that I'm right. There's this sort of implicit defense, whereas everybody else, everyone who's not in that class, you know, 80% of Americans, you know, now I think trust in the media is down, you know, for Republicans, it's, you know, in the toilet, I think it's in the single digits for Americans, by by and large, it's at 30% or something like that. Of course, for Democrats, it's much higher, because, you know, which tells you a lot about, you know, who's being who the media is being produced for. So I feel, but I feel like that mass consumer boycott is a good thing. I, I really believe that we consume too much news. I think that our, 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 we're, we're, our country right now are, you know, especially the people in power, they only value intelligence, talent, um, information, people with, you know, these de- fancy schmancy degrees where you, you know, you don't learn anything real that you could actually use, you know, that it's so, so the fact that, um, that we've been in this state of like, reading so much news and consuming so much news, I think that's really bad. I think we've replaced like spirituality and community with information. And, and the more we boycott the news, the better. That's an interesting approach. I was speaking to someone recently on the show who similar to myself is more, she's, she identifies at least as agnostic or atheist and sees a need for religion, despite the fact that she's yeah. supposed to have said that. <laughs> and I've come to a similar conclusion, although I, I have... I'm very private about my beliefs, but still I see the need to start to not only discuss room for religions. I mean, we do have room made for religion. If you're into crystals and do something that's not involving Jesus, let's say, then that's okay. But there seems to be this slant towards people who are deeply religious in the West today. And now I think it was two weeks ago, we got the news that less than half the country is going to church on a regular basis, which was surprising for me to learn. And I have to wonder if maybe not just religion, but morality, that maybe we need to start talking about morality because the Rittenhouse case and the Weisbaugh incident, both of them are linked to men who have perpetrated crimes against people. And you have the left excusing it, Mm -hmm. including the recent move to have pedophilia declassed as something criminally offensive by some psychologists and have it as another sexuality. So you can be gay, bi, or pedophile. And I'm thinking, wait a second. It's one thing to be a therapist and try to work with someone who has serious issues of many arrays. It's another thing to try to make everything normal because everything's okay. Is everything okay? And I I do wonder when we're getting these news stories about the innocent man who just wanted to go into the women's sections of an LA spa, we're not getting anything remotely related to reality. Just as you pointed out, Rittenhouse did not kill anyone of color. That was completely media generated. So 
people are then expected to have the time to follow the media and then to read the media that's not lying to them. How can you know if you're being lied to as a reader? That's the next question. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think we've replaced a worldview based on right versus wrong with a worldview based on powerful versus powerless. And then we've superimposed a racial binary and then now like a gender identity onto that. So if you're from a protected category, if you're a black person, if you're a, um, a trans person, you literally can do no wrong, right? Like if you do something wrong, if you attack somebody, if you rape a girl in a bathroom, if you steal, you know, if you shoot somebody, you know, the left will come to your defense and defend you based on your identity. Of course, you know, ignoring, you know, the identity of your victims, right? No. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think that that's just going to, I hope we're going to start to see some sort of um, correction to that because it's uh, it's it's a disaster. I mean, it's we're going backwards as a as a civilization. Um, although I do think again, this is very much an elite phenomenon. So you know, you know, middle class people don't think like this. Working class people don't think like this. Religious people don't think like this. Um, uh, and and yeah. Well, you mentioned in your book that there was a conterminous shift at the time when news was trying to figure out how can we make money from online readership. And one of the coincidental actions that happened historically was the rise of the internet and then the implosion of local and the folding of local newspapers. Is it time to bring back local news? And is it time to bring back news news? And I'm talking about the kind of news we started running a series called Disappearing Acts on Savage Minds where we're running it's dry, but these are fact, factually based news items. And it's surprising to see that the readership for the factual based news items is lower than our op-ed pieces. I think we've become too comfortable with not only taking news as op-ed, but not caring so much about the facts, but caring about a strong opinion that's feeding us those facts. You know, I, um, there, the, the period in my book that I think of as sort of the golden age of American journalism, it was very opinionated. It was very partisan. It was just partisan on behalf of the masses. So I'm not sure that I sort of feel um, like that partisan media is um, necessarily the end of the world as long as everybody is represented. I think the problem with our media today is that it's partisan on behalf of the elites. So you have all of the liberal media is partisan on behalf of the top 10% of liberals and then conservative media, which caters to the working class. But from an economic point of view, it's very much catering to the top 5% of conservatives. And we have nobody representing 90% of Americans. If there was like a public that was partisan on behalf of the working class, I can't imagine like that any of us would have a problem with that. Like there, there'd be nothing sort of inherently immoral with that. Um, you know, especially if there were, you know, like there was this time in New York in the 1920s where there were so many communist newspapers that you could be a communist and have four communist newspapers that you would never dream of opening, you know, because you had you had your one that you read. And like, so that that's obviously like, there's something really appealing about that. Like everybody is represented, everybody has a choice. So I'm not sure that like, I feel... I, I, to me, I feel like we, we, the answer is not like more news or I, the, the news should be better. Like the news, news organizations, they're, they're running themselves into the ground, um, from a, from a moral point of view, um, although they're making a lot of money doing so. So that's why I don't really believe there's, you know, I'm not foreseeing some sort of huge correction from the New York times. The New York times used to pride itself on having democratic and Republican readers. And now 93% of its readership, 91% of its readership is democratic. And like, that doesn't happen by accident, right? Like that's, by very much by design and they're making money doing that. So I, I don't see any correction in that, but I don't know that the answer is more news, more publications. Like a lot of people are like, yeah, let's bring back local news. Um, I just, I feel like the answer is less news or no news or, you know, there's nothing that you can get from the internet that you can't get, but, you know, you want to know if there's a lockdown on like, you know, walk down to the corner store and like talk to the the, the grocery owner and the, the people stocking the shelves. Like you'll get all the information you need. Like, I don't know that there's, that we need to know everything that's happening. Like, do we really, like in some ways, it, you know, I like, okay, I totally believe that if George Floyd's murder hadn't been filmed, 
um, you know, we wouldn't have seen justice, right? Derek Chauvin wouldn't have gone to prison. Like, that's a really good thing that that happened. And that happened, you know, it wasn't just that it was filmed, it was that it got the national attention that it deserved. It was on the, you know, the homepage of every publication. Like, that's obviously a good thing. It's, you know, there are good things that come from the nationalization of the news that come from Twitter, that come from the outrage of activists, right? Like, that is a good thing that came from that. You know, same with Ahmad Arbery, right? He, that, that boy was lynched and, and his lynchers are now going to go to prison for the rest of their lives because it was filmed and because there was outrage about it and because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And like, those are really important things to have happened. At the same time, it's like, you know, th- there are also very negative side effects to the pressures that led to those really important success stories. And I, I don't know that like replicating them on a smaller scale is the answer. Like, I, I think that, um, I, I, like I said, I think we all consume too much news. And the answer is to go back to church and to go back to synagogue and to volunteer and to become, you know, an active member of your community um, and, 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 and to, to widen and broaden our view of what news is, you know, it's the stuff that's happening all around you and you have access to that very easily, you know? No, I, I hear you. There's a lot of people, I guess there's a problem. I, I view it as a crisis in our society that was before lockdown. One theorist I had on the show two weeks ago suggested that in fact, lockdown has worked perfectly because reports were coming out prior to lockdown where in the UK, they had to create a ministry of loneliness. People were so lonely. Why are they lonely? Aww. People are spending way too much time online and not enough time speaking to their local grocer, speaking to their friends in real life, not making plans to. We've become bunkered down in internet land. And I do think the way we take news is far too linked to the internet in a way I would like to see papers return, really. And I know there's an ecological side of that, but I think the human side is more important than the ecological side. There must be a way of balancing that. Mm. And You're right. Do we really need to know everything? Isn't it interesting that after lockdown started, everyone became an epidemiologist? (laughs) And I just started to get really annoyed by that. I'm like, well, I don't want to have an opinion until I've read enough and heard enough to speak (laughs) on the subject. I don't need your Twitter firestorm of having not slept and drunk 50 cups of coffee about what you think. Right. Because even lockdown has been brought to us by media scaremongering often. You see this with around the latest variant, when in fact, this morning, Sky News opened showing that with the new variant, hospitalizations are down 54%. Yep, it's depressing. (laughs) I have a very good friend who's um, an ICU nurse, and she has a disabled daughter. And um, she's written an op-ed for us about how schools are closing again and she just can't get over it. Like everyone's acting like it's March, 2020. And she was like, trust me, I know what March, 2020 was like, you know, we now know so much more about the virus. We know that the new variant is not as dangerous as the others. And we know how dangerous closing schools is for the future of our children. And yet they're here, they are acting like, you know, the Omicron is going to, 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 to wreak the same havoc, which it won't because of vaccines and acting like it's okay to close schools. It's just terrible. Yes, well, we're all facing a a severe problem of having to answer people on social media when we've read reports that say something that we're parroting, and that's somehow never good enough. So, yes, who is going to be staying at home, as you say, part of the pajama class, (laughs) doing their work, or even if they're not having to work, a lot of people, and I've spoken to people who are middle class, but they're getting stipends, they're getting paid even if their, their salary isn't the greatest, they're getting paid for staying at home in their pajamas, where many of us who are freelancers are not. Yeah. So there's a big, there's a gulf between the haves and have nots that COVID has brought forth, we can see. So those who tend to be pro-lockdown, you can pretty much bet they're not living in a studio flat with three kids. Yeah. What is the way around this? Your book looks at the moral (laughs) pandemic around these narratives in the elite newsrooms, but you talk about the interests between liberal elites and their economic interests that are being covered in the media. I had another guest last year point out that 
people like Robin D'Angelo are making money hand over fist because it is paving their way to sound good ethically on the one hand and morally. And on the other, it's a great cash cow. How did it happen that, and or maybe the the question should be, how can we get out of this? Because it seems to be quicksand. And the liberal elite who are pushing this are ironically from my side of the fence. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> can we push back on this class or will we have to wait for them to die off? Um, I think that the people, I mean, the people that I... I see leading the way out of this are, um, you know, black leaders saying this is not what we need. Um, this is not helping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I do feel, um, I do feel like there, you know, at some point with the pandemic, with the skyrocketing crime, with the homelessness crisis, you are seeing people turning against this kind of thinking. And I would just, you know, urge your listeners to <laughs> go out and find people that they disagree with and protect those relationships, create and nurture those relationships, because I, I think that's the way out of this is to remember what it feels like to, uh, in, to welcome that feeling of rage when you're talking to someone you love who's very, very wrong about something. You know, that's the way we get out of that is um, by, by stitching back together the fabric of society. And that requires, you know, making those relationships with people who are on the other side of whatever issue you're on. Thank you.